Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I do have a comment today all the way from the cold, frozen north, Canada. It says, Dear JBL, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you and your team for all your efforts expanding our education. I have not missed a program since you began and look forward to the future. And that is warmly from Canada. So I think that's a very nice comment. So thank you, Canada. It was very cold here a few weeks ago, like Canada, but now it's like 80 degrees today. So that's the way it is here in Oklahoma. Well, on our last podcast, I began to discuss Marlowe's testimony to the life and death of Kurtz. Now, I based that program from book three of Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness. Now, uh, as always happens to me, we did not have time to discuss the death of Kurtz. Now, I'm not necessarily promising we'll get through it all today as well. Now, we'll see. But the more I read book three of Heart of Darkness, the more I realize it is an amazing study of human nature. It shows how even the most intelligent and well-meaning humans are seriously debilitated by it. And, of course, we know that's, that's the character, Kurtz. He was a very, very intelligent, had some great humanitarian ideas, but he became corrupted. Now, unfortunately, Conrad could see it, but he could not offer any way to overcome it, but there is a way. And I want to talk to you a little bit how you can find that out maybe at the end of the program. Now, for today's program, I want to continue to discuss Marlowe's testimony to the life and death of Kurtz, and I am going to really work hard on focusing on his death. But I want to do what I want to do is I want to come back just briefly to the uh, relationship between Marlowe and the Russian. And I'm going to get to the section where Marlowe and the Russian part company. And uh, it's in, for my book, it's page 108. But it's, again, it's, uh, it's probably roughly in the middle of this book three. And uh, uh, one of the things that the, as you know, the Russian, he's like inexplicable. He's unexplainable. He's dressed in his rags, but they're all different colors. He looks like a court jester. But uh, this guy just worshiped, worshiped Kurtz. And uh, the, the one thing that the scene that I want to talk about most is where the Russian is really concerned about Kurtz's reputation and what Marlowe could do to, to ruin it. Now, the Russian does explain that uh, uh, he kind of confesses to Kurtz. Um, no, excuse me. He, he actually uh, explains that it was Kurtz who initiated the attack on the steamer. And so I think we probably have talked about some of this before, but, but uh, uh, the, the Russian doesn't see any flaws in Kurtz, but yet he, he does reveal flaws. And uh, the, the reason why that Kurtz wanted to attack the steamer is he didn't want to be taken away. And uh, uh, in some ways, I think we could also say the Russian really didn't want to have Kurtz taken away either. So... Uh, uh, it, it's at this point that that uh, uh, 
The Russian also asked Marlowe to protect Kurtz's reputation. And uh, I'm just going to read you a little quote from this page. It says, The Russian tapped me on the shoulder. I heard him mumbling and stammering something about Brother Seaman. Couldn't conceal knowledge of matters that would affect Mr. Kurtz's reputation. I waited. For him, evidently, Mr. Kurtz was not in his grave. I suspect that for him, Mr. Kurtz was one of the immortals. Well, said I at last, speak out. As it happens, I am Kurtz's friend in a way. And so, so in some ways... The Russian worshipped him. The Russian really loved him, but he also felt he was a friend in a way. Now we know that that uh, in, in, even in the you know past programs, we talked about how uh, at one time Kurtz wanted to shoot him because he wouldn't give up his ivory, and so so uh, you can see I think that the the Russian is just overly, uh, let's say, in um, maybe overcome with uh, Kurtz's personality, and he can do no wrong. So, but 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 essentially, um, you know, he's he's really concerned about what Marlowe is going to do, you know, for Kurtz or do to Kurtz. Um, he goes on. He, he says, um, he, he, when he's talking about the the attack on the steamer, the Russian says, "I could not stop him. Oh, I had an awful time of it this last month. Very well, I said. He is all right now." And so essentially what, what Marlowe wants to do with the Russian is he wants to, you know, just to reassure him that, hey, I'm going to take care of him. And remember, the reason why Marlowe's on the steamer uh, is to bring Kurtz back to the central station because they want Kurtz. They know he's sick. But also we also know the manager wants him out of there because uh, you know, he knows that Kurtz wants his job. And so, so the Russian it, that does respond, and Marlowe says, "Look, I'm going to take care of him." He says, "Yes," he muttered, not very convinced apparently. "Thanks," said I. "I shall keep my eyes open, but quiet, eh?" He urged anxiously. "It would be awful for his reputation if anybody here." I promised a complete discretion with great gravity. I and and so, essentially, what happens then is the Russian decides that he's going to part. He's going to go his own way. He's not going back to the central station, and uh, uh, you know, in some ways, it is it is kind of amazing uh, that the Russian would want to do this. I mean, he's he's really a young guy, and he's going to face the wilderness. And I think this is part of the theme, the underlying theme, and this whole chapter is people can't escape the wilderness. It hurts them, but they don't want to escape it. And that's like human nature is is uh, every human being has it. Very few people understand it. Very few people even want to understand it. And yet it keeps coming back and it's hurting them and hurting them and hurting them. So again, this is at the bottom, the very bottom of the page. The Russian says to, uh, you know, now satisfied that Marlowe is going to really help. He says, I am off. Could you give me a few Martini Henry cartridges? I could and did with proper secrecy. This is what Marlowe says. He helped himself with a wink at me to a handful of my tobacco and, uh, you know, I'm sure that was a, a good commodity at that time or probably a scarce, a scarce uh, uh, commodity. He says, between sailors, you know, good English tobacco. At the door of the pilot house, he turned around and he said, I say, haven't you a pair of shoes you could spare? <laughs> so, so in some ways, here's this, this young guy. He's out there and he's, he's practically shoeless. And he's, uh, you know, patched in all these, uh, the man of patches, as Conrad calls him. Says he he raised one leg. Look, look. Excuse me. He raised one leg. Look. The soles were tied with knotted strings, sandal wise, under his bare feet. 
I rooted out an old parrot which he looked with admiration before tucking it under his left arm. One of his pockets, bright red, was bulging with cartridges. From the other, dark blue, peeped Towson's inquiry, etc., etc. He seemed to think himself ex- excellently well-equipped for a renewed encounter with the wilderness. And again, that's the reason I bring that out. It's another, I think, Conrad statement. And I think it's a statement for all of us is, you know, none of us are prepared to really face the darkness, even in our own selves. And, uh, you know, Conrad really gets into this uh, as this uh, as this book concludes. And, uh, you know, so so Marlowe is giving us all this this running commentary. But Marlowe. And again, I think we have to obviously say it's Conrad is just, you know, just leading us along. He wants us to think about human nature. And then, of course, one thing then at the end, when when the Russian is ready to take off, he says, I'll never meet such a man again. Uh, He's talking about Kurtz. He says, you ought to have heard him recite poetry, his own too it was. He told me poetry. He rolled his eyes at the recollection of these delights. Oh, he enlarged my mind. Goodbye, said I. He shook hands and vanished in the night. Sometimes I ask myself whether I have ever really seen him, whether it was possible to meet such a phenomenon. And again, I think last time I mentioned to you that, that Marlowe is definitely affected or really influenced by young people that you know are really ready to go out and tackle the world and, and expend their youth and do big things. And uh, he, he just couldn't believe that he even saw the Russian out there. But I think all of us would probably feel the same way if we saw, you know, this, and maybe I uh, imagine him to be blonde, fair, uh, <laughs> dressed in all different colored clothes. I said, you know, it might, uh, I've said to myself, it might, it might be, he might seem like a phenomenon to me too. So um, anyway, they, uh, they have Kurtz, they have him on the steamer, and then, then the real... Uh, the real exciting part, um, you know, gets going. And essentially what, uh, what we have here is Kurtz decides to escape back into the wilderness or into the blackness. And, uh, you know, uh, Marlowe does feel uh, very much uh, responsible to make sure he gets him back to the central station. So I, I think this is a great scene. It says, when I woke up shortly after midnight, his warning uh, came to my mind with its hint of danger that seemed in the st- star darkness real enough to make me get up for the purpose of having a look around. So, you know, the, the Russian had warned him to really be careful. And he goes on to say, on the, on the hill, a big fire burned, illuminating fitfully a crooked corner of the station house. One of the agents with a picket of a few of our blacks, armed for the purpose, was keeping guard over the ivory. So, so again, the, the big thing, even at this station, is protecting the ivory. He says, uh, Marlowe goes on to say, but deep within the forest, red gleams that wavered that seemed to sink and rise from the ground amongst confused columnar shapes of intense blackness showed the exact position of the camp where Mr. Kurtz's adorers were keeping their uneasy vigil. So, so here... They finally have Kurtz on the steamer. They're getting ready the next day to take off, get him back to the central station when all of Kurtz's adorers are having this ceremony in the, the, you know, the blackness of night, and they're trying really to woo Kurtz back to them. 
I mean, they know he's on the steamer. The intended, not the intended, the mistress knows he's on the steamer. They know he can hear. They know that he understands their language. And uh, they're trying to get him back. And, uh, but again, I think Conrad and his genius, he, he uh, lets us see that this is, this is really the way human nature works. It never gives up. You know, it, it's always there lurking in the background, ready to woo us into some other problem. Uh, this is really great writing. This is probably about the middle, towards the end of the page. This is the way, the way Conrad writes it. And he's writing for, obviously, Marlowe. It says, The monotonous beating of the big drum filled the air with muffled shocks and a lingering vibration. A steady droning sound of many men chanting each to himself some weird incantation came out from the black, flat wall of the woods as the humming of bees comes out of a hive and had a strange narcotic effect on my half-awake senses. I believe I dozed off leaning over the rail till an abrupt burst of yells and overwhelming outbreak of pent-up and mysterious frenzy woke me up in a bewildering wonder. It was cut short all at once and the low droning went on with an effect of audible soothing silence. I glanced into the little cabin. A light was burning within, but Mr. Kurtz was not there. So, so I mean, in some ways, if we, and I don't want to read too much into this, but, but if you look at human nature and if you look at our lives, sometimes we can get just caught up in something and it can, you know, just lull us along. And then, you know, the bitter pill comes at the end. And so, so uh, that's just typical of, of uh, you know, human life, in, certainly in this age. But then, uh, uh, if you notice Marlowe uh, right here, he, he really does, you know, show his responsibility. He says, I think I would have raised an outcry if I had believed my eyes, but I didn't believe them at first. The thing seemed so impossible. The fact I was completely unnerved by a sheer blank fright, pure abstract terror, Uncounted with any distinct shape of physical danger, what made this emotion so over, overpowering was, well, how shall I define it? The moral shock I received, as if something altogether monstrous, intolerable to thought, and odious to the soul, had been thrust upon me unexpectedly. This lasted, of course, the merest fraction of a second, and then the usual sense of commonplace, deadly danger, the, the possibility of a sudden onslaught and massacre or something of the kind, which I saw impending, was positively welcoming and composing. It pacified me, in fact, so much that I did not raise an alarm. And so, so here, Kurtz is just shocked, or not Kurtz is, sorry, sorry Marlowe is just shocked that Kurtz is gone. And, you know, he's wondering, did they come and take him? Did they come and get him? And then he thought, wow, I could have been in danger and didn't even realize it. So there's another agent sleeping on the chair and uh, uh, on the steamer, and he doesn't even bother him, but he goes in search of Kurtz. He said, I was anxious to deal with this shadow by myself alone, and to this day I don't know why I was so jealous of sharing with anyone the peculiar blackness of that experience. So essentially what, what Marlowe says he's, he's going to do is he's going to go out and find him on his own. And in other words, he's going into the blackness to find Kurtz. And uh, <clears throat> he goes on to say, as soon as I got on the bank, I saw a trail, a broad trail through the grass. I remember the exultation with which I said to myself, he can't walk, he's crawling on all fours, I've got him. 
The grass was wet with dew. I strode rapidly with clenched fists. I fancy I had some vague notion of falling upon him and giving him a drubbing. I don't know. I had some imbecile thoughts. And uh, then, then what he does is he begins to realize if he's crawling, he can outrun him. And so he circulates out from the path and comes around and, and he meets Kurtz. Really, essentially, he's crawling. And he's, where is he crawling? He's crawling to those that adore him. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it really was kind of a dangerous thing what he really did. Uh, this is uh, over a couple of pages. It says, I came upon him, and if he had not heard me coming, I would have fallen over him too. But he got up in time. He rose, unsteady, long, pale, indistinct, like a vapor exhaled by the earth and swayed slightly misty and silent before me, while at my back the fires loomed between the trees and the murmur of many voices issued from the forest. I had cut him off cleverly, but when actually confronting him, I seemed to come to my senses. I saw the danger in its right proportion. It was by no means over yet. Suppose he began to shout. Though he could hardly stand, there was still plenty of vigor in his voice. And so here's a comparison you know, the Russian saw Kurt's voice as very soothing, as, as very intelligent, as, you know, it, it uh, kept him awake all night. They talked of all these great subjects. But here, Marlowe realizes <laughs> that same voice could get him killed. And, uh, you know, there's the, you know, the adoring people that love him so much were only about 30 feet away. And all he had to do is say, come, get me, and get him. And that could have been over for him. But he goes on to say, a black figure stood up, strode on long black legs, waving long black arms across the glow. It had horns, antelope horns, I think, on its head. Some sorcerer, some witch man, no doubt. It looked fiend-like enough. Do you know what you are doing, I whispered. And this is what he, he talked to Kurtz. And this is what Kurtz says. He says, perfectly, he answered, raising his voice for the single word. Uh, it sounded to me far off and yet loud like a hail through a speaking trumpet. If he makes a row, we are lost, I thought to myself. This clearly was not a case for fisticuffs. Even apart from the very natural aversion, I had to beat that shadow, this wandering and tormented thing. You will be lost, I said, utterly lost. One gets sometimes a flash of inspiration, you know. I did say the right thing was at this very moment when the foundations of our intimacy were being laid to endure, to endure even to the end, even beyond. So, so here... Marlowe is finally getting deep contact with Kurtz, and he's trying to save Kurtz from going back into the darkness. And yet, yet uh, you know, he's studying. He's studying Kurtz the whole time. And uh, again, this is what uh, you know. I I think if we're going to really work with our human nature and overcome our human nature, we have to learn to study ourselves and study what we're doing and study the way we're thinking, and then analyze: Is this the best thing? And, uh, um, you know, so, so he says to him, Look, Kurtz, what are you doing? <laughs> I had immense plans, he muttered irresolutely. Yes, said I, but if you try to shout, I'll smash your head with. There was not a stick or stone near. I will throttle you for good. I corrected myself. I was on the threshold of great things, he pleaded, in a voice of longing with a wistful of tone that made my blood run cold. And now for this stupid scoundrel, and, and so, so the thing is, is Kurtz cannot see his condition. 
he's dying and it's the wilderness and it's the love of ivory it's it's the the covetousness it's the worship of it that's made him this way and and marlowe tries to tell him he says your success in europe is assured in any case i affirm steadily i did not want to have the throttling of him you understand in a deed would have been very little use for any practical purpose Listen to this. This is so important. I tried to break the spell, the heavy, mute spell of the wilderness that seemed to draw him into its pitiless breast by the awakening of forgotten and brutal instincts, by the memory of gratified and monstrous passions. This alone, I was convinced, had driven him out to the edge of the forest, to the bush, towards the gleam of the fires, the throb of the drums, the drone of the weird incantations. This alone beguiled his unlawful soul beyond the bounds of permitted aspirations. And so, so you know, think about what is being said there. Obviously, I think we have to see that Conrad is going far beyond and wants us to go think far beyond than just, you know, reading about Kurtz and his story is, you know, there's a, there's things human beings get involved in because of their human nature that you know pushes them beyond the bounds of sanity. He goes on to say, confound the man. He had kicked the very earth to pieces. He was alone, and I before him did not know whether I stood on the ground or floated in the air. I've been telling you what we said, repeating the phrases we pronounced, but what's the good? They were common everyday words, the familiar, vague sounds exchanged on every waking day of life. But what of that? They had behind them, to my mind, the terrific suggestiveness of words heard in dreams, of phrases spoken in nightmares, soul. If anybody had ever struggled with a soul, <clears throat> I am the man, and I was arguing with a lunatic. Believe me or not, his intelligence was perfectly clear, concentrated. It is true upon himself with horrible intensity, yet clear, and therein was my only chance, bearing, of course, the killing him there, and then, which wasn't so good on account of unavoidable noise. Then he goes on to say, but his soul was mad. And so so look at the condition. Not only is, is Kurtz dying, but he was really insane. Uh, he, was, he had gone mad. Marlowe goes on, he said, <clears throat> he struggled with himself, too. I saw it. I heard it. I saw the inconceivable mystery of a soul that knew no restraint, no faith, no fear, yet struggling blindly with itself. I kept my head pretty well, but when I had him at last stretched out on the couch, I wiped my forehead while my legs shook underneath me as though I had carried him a half a ton on my back down the hill, and yet I had only supported him, his bony arm clasped round my neck, and he was not much heavier than a child. And so... So here, the big revelation is, is Marlowe realize, <clears throat> realizes that Kurtz can't get himself out of the, the darkness or the blackness and that his, he has just gone mad. His soul is, is mad. He's trying, trying to get back. So <clears throat> there's a lot I think we can take from this and learn from it from, from ourselves. And again, by the end of the program, I'm going to offer you a booklet that you could write for on human nature that can can help you see that you can uh, deal with your human nature and you can overcome it as well. I just want to go on now and uh, talk about the death of Kurtz, and uh, I think we can get this get this through today. But th- this would be like page 113 in this um, 
Barnes and Noble edition. Uh, again, this, this is really beautiful writing here. It says, um, Marlowe's saying, the brown current ran swiftly out of the heart of darkness, bearing us down towards the sea with twice the speed of our upward progress. And Kurtz's life was running swiftly too, ebbing, ebbing out of his heart into the sea of inexorable time. The manager was very placid. He had no vital anxieties now. He took us both in with a comprehensive and satisfied glance. The affair had come off as well as could be wished. I saw the time approaching when I would be left alone uh, of the party of unsound method. So remember, the the, uh, the, the manager did not like the fact that uh, of some of Marlowe's thinking and reasoning, and he knew that the manager considered him unsound. <clears throat> Marla goes on, and he tells us that all of a sudden, Kurtz begins to talk. He says, a voice, a voice that rang deep to the very last. It's, it survived his strength to hide in the magnificent folds of eloquence the barren darkness of his heart. Oh, he struggled, he struggled. And so, so essentially what, what's going on that, that Conrad's relating to us through Marlowe is that Kurtz is dying. And he's, it's like he's talking, and he, but yet he's, he's totally out of it. And he was really struggling, uh, you know, with, with his life. He's really struggling with what he's done. He says, the waste of his weary brain were haunted by shadow images now, images of wealth and fame revolving obsequiously around his undistinguishable gift of noble and lofty expression. And uh, he goes on to quote Kurt, to quote Kurtz by saying, my intended, my station, my career, my ideas. These were the subjects of the occasional utterances of elevated sentiments. The shade of the original Kurtz frequented the bedside of the hollow sham, whose fate it was to be buried presently in the mold of primeval earth. Both, But both the diabolic love and the unhealthy, unearthly hate of the mysteries it had penetrated, fought for, the possession of that soul, Satiated with the primitive emotions, avid of lying fame, of sham distinction, of all the appearances of success and power. So <clears throat> Kurtz realizes his life could have been been so much better. And uh, and you know, now he's just dying. All of his ideas are going to die with him. Marla goes on to say, his was an impenetrable dark darkness. I looked at him as you peer down at a man who is lying at the bottom of a precipice where the sun never shines. But I had not much time to give him because I was helping the engine driver to take pieces of leaky cylinders to, a, to straighten a bent connecting rod and other such matters. So it's, it's interesting here. The guy is dying. He's, uh, he's lost in this uh, you know, impenetrable dark impenetrable darkness that's a hard word to say his was an impenetrable darkness but he's got to deal with the mundane things like fixing the engine and so uh, uh, he goes on to say another little thing there he says one evening coming in with a candle I was startled to hear him say uh, a little tremulously I am lying here in the dark waiting for death the light was within the foot of his eyes I forced myself to murmur Oh, nonsense, and stood over him as if transfixed. But then, um, you know, he, he sat there watching him, and he goes, this is Marlowe saying, anything approaching the change that came over his features I have never seen before and hope never to see again. Oh, I wasn't touched. I was fascinated. 
It was as though a veil had been rent. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath, the horror, the horror. And so that's, that is the most famous line, I think, in, in, uh, in literature. Now, I just want to read to you a little bit of a note at the, at the end of this book. And um, this is uh, the, the, the uh, editors of this book say, The phrase, the horror, the horror, especially compelling among the broad range of interpretation that this famous passage has received as suggestions that it sums up Kurtz's insight to the basic depravity of human nature. And so, so I think that will just, you know, that just goes to prove that, you know, this third book is really all about that. And it is, I think it's so important for us to read it and then also to begin to, well, analyze our own life. Now, what I'd like to do is, uh, uh, again, the subject of human nature is so important that uh, I want you to, uh, if, if you uh, are so inclined, there is a booklet that we do offer. It is titled Human Nature, What Is It? And it's by Mr. Stephen Flurry. And it does describe human nature, what it is, and it does give you tips and uh, the, the way on how to overcome it. So you can... Um, get to the trumpet.com website, go to the the uh, literature area, and you can download a copy of that booklet for yourself for free. And uh, again, there, there'll be no response, uh, no follow-up on that. And that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, I'll definitely begin my final summary of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Now, what this means is in just a few weeks, we'll begin our discussion of Lord Jim, And remember, we're following the book Lord Jim because we want to learn more about Marlowe. So you may want to buy a copy of that book as well. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may also be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. And in fact, it it was at ABE Books that I got my copy and a copy for my partner in literature, my wife. And so we're working madly to get this book up and running. Now, you may be able to find a good used copy in your local bookstore, or you can even check your local library. Now, please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.